right. Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning from an overcast and drizzly day here in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's program, we examine the present-day manifestation of a decades-old plan and philosophy which seeks to undermine and control the entirety of our global system and populations. What is this insidious plan and philosophy? It's technocracy. Joining us today is the well-known author, Patrick Wood. Mr. Wood is a leading and critical expert on technocracy and its myriad of facets, sustainable development, the green economy, Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, and the historic origins of this movement. As an economist by education, a financial analyst and a writer by profession, and an American constitutionalist by choice, Mr. Wood maintains a biblical worldview and has a deep historical insight into the modern attacks on our sovereignty, property rights, and personal freedom. Mr. Wood remains a leading expert on the elitist Trilateral Commission, their policies and achievements in creating their self-proclaimed new international economic order, which is the essence, which is the essence of sustainable development on a global scale. He is the author of Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order, Technocracy Rising, The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, and co-author of The Trilaterals Over Washington, Volumes 1 and 2, which he authored with the late Anthony C. Sutton. Wood is a frequent speaker and guest on radio shows around the nation. His current research builds on the Trilateral Commission hegemony, focusing on technocracy, transhumanism, scientism, and how these are all transforming global economics, politics, and religion. Patrick, it's a great honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time, and welcome to the show. My pleasure. There's a lot, lots to talk about, I'll tell you. There sure is. And, and as you say, we've got a lot to cover today. Uh, but first, I'd like to get the listeners to learn a little bit more about you personally and your motivations. And if you could provide us with a brief personal history and, and perhaps describe how reporting and investigating the technocratic agenda has become such an important part of your life. Yeah, I began to write about globalization uh, back in the 1970s when I was a financial, I would say a young financial analyst in those days. And uh, I had run across this organization during the Jimmy Carter administration called the Trilateral Commission. And it puzzled me because I kept running into them everywhere I went, or at least their members. And it uh, was curious to me. So I started looking into it and, and using some of my financial analysis skills to follow the money. And I realized something was really wrong, but I just didn't get it. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't put my finger on it. Then I ran into Professor Anthony Sutton at a gold conference down in New Orleans, purely by chance. I would say by divine appointment, but by, you know, we just kind of bumped into each other. It was very strange circumstances. And he was studying the same group and the same thing at that time. And uh, so we had something in common immediately when we met. And we realized we had a big story together. And oddly enough, uh, he had just been uh, booted from the Hoover Institution at Stanford University because he was studying, writing, researching uh, the Trilateral Commission and its membership. And he didn't really take into account that the president of Stanford at the time uh, was David Packard, who was of Hewlett Packard fame, who happened to be one of the founding members of the Trilateral Commission in 1973. So when they got wind that, hey, old Sutton down there is got a big research project going on on the Trilateral Commission. They said, nope, not on, not on our watch. So they, they kicked him out. And he was very depressed because it kind of destroyed his career, his academic career. But we teamed up together. We started writing and we produced two books ultimately called Trilaterals Over Washington. And so we really sliced and diced the whole globalization concept for years. And then during the, you know, the 
90s and the early 2000s, there wasn't a lot to talk about. Sutton passed in 2002, uh, put a great burden on me because all of his original research was lost, um, destroyed along the way. And so I picked up the trail again. And after some time of additional research and stuff, I ran across historic technocracy. And I'd never heard of it before. Just brand new to me. It, it had missed the history books, I found out later, for good reason. I won't, but it did. And so it's not, it's not something you would have read about, but I did some original research. And oddly enough, you'll appreciate this for Canada. I, all, uh, the friend of mine from, from Canada helped me discover this. There was an archive on the original technocracy movement at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. <laughs> and so up to Canada I went, and I spent a week up in Edmonton um, going through all of their archive boxes. They were very cordial to me. Um, they put me in a nice, comfortable conference room with a copy machine and brought out tray or a cart after cart full of library boxes and said, when you're done with one, give us a jingle, we'll bring out another one. So I ended up spending a whole week there studying the original documents of historic technocracy from the 1930s. And I recognized that, that almost immediately that technocracy was an economic model for one thing. And it was also the object of the original trilateral commissions, what they called the new international economic order. That was their catchphrase, their marketing logo, whatever. And Neither Sutton nor I fully understood what they meant by new international economic order. We kind of thought, well, it's kind of like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, same ship, different configuration. We knew they were gaming the system somehow. That, that was for certain. But we didn't really understand because we didn't know anything about historic technocracy. When I discovered that, I'll tell you, the alarm bells just started going off, the, the light bulbs popping, and uh, this has been, you know, my study and my writing and my alarm for the, for these last many years now, I think probably 11, 12 years I've been on this trail, and uh, actually longer than that now, uh, but yeah, it's been a while. And only now are people around the world really starting to wake up to this technocracy danger, thanks to, pan to the pandemic, a lot. Uh, they see the signs of scientific dictatorship encroaching. Um, and they're looking around. They don't, maybe they don't know everything is going on, but they know something fishy here. Doesn't sound right, doesn't smell right. We're being played. And so they look around for answers. So it's, uh, it's finally comforting to see that uh, legitimate journalists, uh, writers, authors, professionals in various fields are seriously taking a look at historic technocracy and how it is fast forwarded into today's world. Yeah, I mean, and we're certainly, that's a very good point that with the pandemic, it's almost afforded uh, an acceleration of this agenda uh, if it wasn't uh, completely planned um, as one of the facets of the program. Yes, I very firmly believe at this point that it was a planned event, even if the virus itself was not, we could put that on the shelf just for a minute. <clears throat> the response to whatever it was, the pandemic, is clearly and pointedly and only uh, engineered by these same people, these, these, this technocrat class of people 
who have plans for the world that very few people ever recognized. And now they're starting to see that. But this is a global thing. This this the oddest thing. People, people still kind of think in terms of their own country. Well, it's happening in Canada or well, it's happening in America. No, this is global. We need to see it that way. Um, these people that are pulling the strings on this right now are not interested in any one country. If there is a country that has a border, it's merely a nuisance that has to be dealt with in their mind, because in the end of it, they don't want any borders anywhere, by and large. Or at least they want to control everything and make the borders irrelevant. So, yes, it sped things up. Um, and, you know, we could talk about that a little bit, about, you know, what how the switchover came to switch from global warming alarmism to virus alarmism. Uh, Sure, and we'll and we'll, we'll get to that um, yeah. in in some detail. Uh, and I guess obviously you, there must be a level of vindication for you because you know you have been labeled as a conspiracy theorist. And I understand that uh, earlier in your career, one of your books was blacklisted, and so I can see the smile on your face. You know, you're you're all these things that you were talking about and trying to report are now in front of everyone's face. So you you know you're no longer the tinfoil hat uh, fringe lunatic. You are essentially a, a reporter who is not making up information. You're simply reporting the facts as you've assembled them and, and here they are in front of everyone now. That's all it ever was. And we, yeah, we earned that title way back in day one, really, in the, when we started writing about the Trilateral Commission. We were swept to the left and the right, oddly enough. Some people, uh, you know, some of the elite said, well, we're left-wing nutcakes. And others said, well, we're right-wing nutcakes. But we were nutcakes. And they always positioned themselves in the moderate middle. Always. They were the centrist. They were the balanced and the fair and the reasonably minded people. And those other, you know, people out there, the fanatics, they're crazy. And this has been the case ever since. They're still saying the exact same thing today. That anybody that takes a look at them and criticizes them, oh, you know, it's conspiracy theorist, uh, you know, tinfoil hat, and how dare they question us, you know, we who are saving the world, <laughs> we who have science behind us and we're applying the magic of science to the world, how could anybody have anything bad to say about us? Sure, sure. So for those listeners who may be hearing this term technocracy for the first time, uh, perhaps it's best to begin our discussion here with, with a brief history lesson on the subject. Um, and can we examine how this idea came into existence and, and which individuals or organizations uh, spawned it and promoted it? Right. If this was just some crackpot theory that a, a group of, you know, alcoholics or something we're talking about in the back room. I mean, nobody would ever pay attention to it. I mean, people talk all the time, right? And crazy ideas are, are put out. Technocracy originated at Columbia University in 1932. This, this, is, this was the premier progressive university in the world at that time. And engineers and scientists at Columbia University collectively got together and they said, okay, guys, here's the problem. Capitalism is dead. Great Depression. It's going on right now. It's the worst time in history for us. It's up to us to save the world. 
And so let's put our heads together and come up with a brand new economic system that would be able to replace the economic model that we say is dead or dying, will soon be dead. That was technocracy. That's what they called it, T-E-C-H-N-O-C-R-A-C-Y. And lest anybody think that it was a political system, they would just they should just immediately discard that idea for the balance of our conversation. And here's why I say that. They believed that their engineering scientific skills to apply science to society was so definitive, so absolutely correct that there was no need for a political structure in a country to represent the people of the country. So they proposed dismissing Congress altogether. Send them home. Just They called on FDR at the time, Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, just elected, 1933, to declare himself as dictator in order to implement technocracy straight up. Just get rid of everybody and we'll come in and appoint our people as the leaders and organizers of the country. And we will simply do what's right. We will make good economic decisions. We'll take care of everybody. Everybody will have a job and we'll make sure everything is efficient and there's no waste in the system. And all this was just pie, really just pie in the sky fantasy, utopia, daydreaming. But because it was Columbia University, it immediately got traction in the intellectual world across the across really across the world, but especially in North America. And by the way, the technocracy movement, Canada was huge. There was chapter, the whole organizational structure in each province in Canada. And British Columbia was probably the strongest and the biggest one. <laughs> so, you know, we had it in North America. At one time, there was over 500,000 card-carrying, dues-paying members to Technocracy Incorporated. That was a big organization. And that's, and, of course, uh, when the population was much smaller than it is today. That's exactly right. But there was a lot of talk, and of course, there was a lot of despair in the world. The Great Depression really destroyed a lot of people's lives, and and they were looking for hope for anything that would just help, you know, kind of get them back on their feet again. And technocracy at first looked like a good deal, you know. They thought, well, if it came from someplace like Colombia, it must be good. Um, well, you know, that's. <laughs> Somebody suggested, in fact, somebody, I think, I forget if they graduated from Harvard or whatever, but some some guy that had a really high-ranking uh, education, I, I said it came from Columbia University. He got, he got this kind of concerned look on his face and just kind of thinking, and he said, did anything good ever come out of Columbia? <laughs> it was a good laugh. I don't know. Maybe it never. Maybe nothing ever did. But they're still up to no good today. But uh, it didn't last very long at Columbia for a couple of reasons. But as it moved out of there, it spread across the country, across North America. It jumped from from uh, North America into Nazi Germany very quickly. Too. They started a chapter of technocracy, um, and the ideology lives on today. Clearly, it does now. It's you can compare the two old versus today, and you can say, oh, there's a marker, there's a marker. Just kind of compare the patterns and uh, 
you know, the similarities and stuff, it's unmistakably, we're dealing with, uh, with a, you could call it neo-technocracy if you wanted to, a new technocracy, but it's the same thing that they cooked up back then. Yeah, and of course, uh, in in one of your books there, I saw that uh, the New York Times in 1933 linked technocracy and the Nazi leaders. I mean, that was pretty much a well-known fact. Um, and, you know, they go on to say that without the technocracy uh, fundamentals, you know, a lot of what we saw take place in the Third Reich probably wouldn't have happened uh, because that created sort of an impetus for their actions. Yes, that's exactly right. And what was, <clears throat> and there's a quite a, a a lot of history to talk about there. Something, maybe a project I'd like to have some data to really kind of flesh that out. And I've got quite a bit of research on it, just never really put it in writing. One of the odd uh, outcomes of the Nazi Germany uh, experience, uh, the, the technocrats definitely were operating during that period of time to let Hitler do what he did. But right after uh, the war, a top secret operation in the United States called Operation Paperclip was instituted that brought many of the very top scientists and engineers from Germany to the United States, repatriated them here, sanitized their resumes, placed them into positions of scientific prowess around the country, like in the national laboratories and NASA and um, you know, they just resumed their lives over here, got reestablished, and they brought this whole thing back into the United States, and nobody really paid attention. Of course, I said top secret. It was, this, the secret thing wasn't re removed until just a few years ago. Yeah. And that, that was some... That was some 1,500 or so individuals uh, that made up part of uh, Operation Paperclip? That's exactly right. Yeah, 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 it was incredible. Many of these people should have been tried and probably hung. That <laughs> you know, they just they got you know what while the Nuremberg trials were going on, this whole group just sidestepped the whole thing, and they were brought over here and given a you know, red carpet to get to keep their their research going. It was absolutely incredible. Hmm. Incredible story. And so, you know, it's, it seems like the Trilateral Commission then is sort of the uh, the genesis then of this modern technocratic uh, movement. Uh, am I correct in that assumption? And, and how did that or who formed that commission and, and what right. was its defined purpose? That's exactly right. The, the, the commission was formed by two people, an academic and a money man. David Rockefeller was the guy that had the money. And Zbigniew Brzezinski was the guy that had the brains. Brzezinski had written a book a couple of years earlier called uh, uh, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. That book was about, essentially, about the ultimate stage where the world is going, the technotronic era. He was essentially saying the technocratic era is talking about future technocracy, the application of science to the management of society. And not oddly enough to me, he was a professor at the time at Columbia University. <laughs> just, that doesn't prove anything by itself. 
But ideas in the halls of power tend to be discussed over decades. That's just kind of the way it is. You meet in conferences, you have caucuses, you have the lunchroom, you know, the cafeteria, uh, you have social events, and you have just you know discussion groups. These ideas don't die historically in a university. They continue to get talked about. Brzezinski capitalized on that whole thing, wrote the book, and Rockefeller identified that book as something he wanted a piece of. So he brought money to the table. Prior to that, I have to say, back in the 30s, there was no institutional money whatsoever that was given to the technocracy group. They did not have the Carnegie Institute behind them. They did not have the, the early Rockefeller funds and stuff at, the, at their disposal. They did it the hard way with just membership money, 25 bucks a month or whatever from people who joined. But when Rockefeller got into it, he was the chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank at the time. The guy, the guy was loaded. Of course, the Rockefeller family is untold wealth, uh, generational wealth that was passed down. And so you have to ask the question immediately, why would Rockefeller be interested in this crackpot you know, utopian scheme called technocracy. And it really isn't too difficult. I, I have to say he hijacked it at that point. Okay. If the early technocrats were around today, they would not like what they see today with what's going on exactly. But Rockefeller hijacked it from the standpoint that technocracy was a resource-based economic system. It was all about resources the land, the timber, the farming, the oil, the minerals, the everything that happens on the land. All wealth in the world has its original source in the land, in the resources involved in the land, right? Rockefeller understood that in the end of everything, if he wanted to if their family wanted to come out on top, they had to control the resources, all of them, not just a little bit, the whole enchilada. So this was really, even in the early days, it was the resource grab of epic proportions. That's where it started, a resource grab. Now that really is kind of simple to understand in a way because many local cities have people in there that are trying to get a resource grab through scurrilous means to get a hold of property, take it away from somebody else, you know, eminent domain, condemn it, and, you know, run the people off or whatever. That happens all the time. Well, this was, this was a resource grab on a global scale. That's why they call it the New International Economic Order. And of course, I guess, skip, skipping ahead slightly, an extension of that then is this whole, uh, you know, global warming alarmist movement which it has the exact same uh, purpose, which is to sequester resources, in this case, fossil fuels, to a, a, an extremely limited few. That's exactly right. And, and I ha I'd have to mention, let's see if I can find the, yeah, here, I just got it here. Um, the new international economic order was all over the literature of the early Trilateral Commission writings. And they had journals, they had a book there, a magazine they produced. But... <clears throat> In 1974, and remember they started in 73, late 73, uh, by spring, uh, by May 1st, as a matter of fact, of 1974, the United Nations passed a resolution 
a general resolution. It was number, uh, see if I can get here just to document it. The resolution number was 3201. That's discoverable, easily discoverable on the internet if anybody wants to look it up. Here's the title of this resolution. Declaration on the Establishment of a New International Economic Order. <laughs> it's right. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's not, not hiding at all. Not hiding at all. I say hiding in plain sight. Now, I cer certainly most people never connected the two things together, but where do you suppose they got this language? They got it from David Rockefeller, for Pete's sake, who had been very friendly. The Rockefeller family had been friendly with the UN since its inception. In fact, their, their main building in New York is sitting on land that was donated by the early Rockefeller family for the establishment building of that, that structure. So they had a long history with the United Nations, but they passed the whole mantra off to the United Nations. This is important because if you follow the trail through the UN, this new international economic order was remarketed, re kind of repackaged and remarketed under a new name, Sustainable Development. That's where it came from. It came from the Trilateral Commission in their early days. They fed this whole doctrine to the United Nations. Sustainable Development today is a resource-based economic system. It's technocracy. And so looking, kind of looking backwards, uh, you can trace, and we won't do it right here, but if somebody reads my books, you'll see we can trace the history, the exact path from 1973 on how it got into the United Nations, on how Agenda 21 was born in 1992, and which became later Agenda 2030, and how the new urban development doctrine was uh, popped out of the United Nations. All these things were a result of the new international economic order. And now we have the World Economic Forum finally stepping back into the picture for the sake of big business. Now they're saying, oh, baby, it's sustainable development all the way. Now we're going to do it. And they call it the Great Reset. They call it the you know, the old economy, capitalism is dead. Capitalism's gonna burn down. We're gonna build back better. We're gonna have a great reset of the world's economic system. This is just nonsense. If you understand the historicity of it, it's absolute nonsense. These, these, people, these people are frauds and they're perpetrating the greatest fraud in history. And you mentioned global warming. That's where I happen to know uh, Dr. Willie Soon from and others like Dr. Will Happer. This whole global warming thing is just propaganda to drive people into sustainable development. There was no other reason. There was no other solution offered. Let's just postulate, let's say, well, there is a problem with global warming. Okay. I don't say that, but just we'll just for the sake of arguing about it, say, well, there really is a problem. It, 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 we can document that there is an issue that has, that needs to be solved. Then, if that's the case, we would sit down and we would talk about possible solutions to it. Well, let's get people together. Let's get some ideas and throw them around. We'll debate them and we'll figure out if there's any 
uh, traction, and uh, we'll go do that thing and correct the problem. Not with this crowd. There's only one solution that has ever, ever, ever been offered for any of their contrived alarmism, and that is sustainable development. What's the solution to global warming? Sustainable development. What's the solution to the pandemic? It's sustainable development. And it's always the same thing. Punch, punch, one, two, problem, crisis, fear, whatever, alarmism, solution over here, sustainable development, we're waiting for you. Come on over. If you love it, it's going to be great. Going to eliminate poverty. Going to have education for all. Jobs with dignity. Over here, sustainable development. This is the biggest con of history, in my opinion. And it's a very simple con to understand. Lots of details. Lots of science to argue about stuff, you know, and dispute. That's, unfortunately, the whole global warming argument took away a lot of great minds from doing what they should be doing to arguing with those idiots over the corrupted science that they're trying to put forth. For sure. And, and clearly, sustainable development is an Orwellian term, which is really, you know, Rockefeller benefit economic system above, above and beyond anything. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And what the United Nations has done, I just have to throw this in. You know, people are still going to, well, how does the United Nations do this? L let me give you an example. The United Nations works in concert with the Bank for International Settlements, the World Bank, and the IMF. They go out to a country, let's say, I don't know, Chile or Bolivia or whatever. They go out to some country. They get them so deeply in debt that they can't possibly get out. And they say, you got to pay the loan. And, oh, but wait, you, you can't pay the loan. We can't take your firstborn. But here's what we'll do. We'll forgive the loan if you pay the interest on the loan and... If you set aside large tracts of very rich land in your country, we will manage that land for you even, we will call it a heritage zone. And we'll set that land apart. And you can't develop that land, though. It's, it's going to be just pristine, leave it that way. We'll call it a heritage zone. And some of your, they wouldn't say this, but some of the richest minerals that might get you out of debt now you can't even touch them. But we got the resources. Well, they've been doing these, these uh, debt for land swaps all over the, the world. And people are buying into it because they feel like they have no choice. Countries are buying into it. This is a land grab. It's a resource grab. And every time you see it, you know, I just wrote a, a comment this morning on a story on technocracy.news. The federal government in the United States owns 28% of the landmass of the United States. 28%. 600 million acres. Inconceivable. Why does the, you know, why would any government need to own 600 million acres and basically put it off limits to anybody to, you know, to go there? No trespassing signs all over it. Can't go near it. Can't touch it. Can't drill on it now. Biden just canceled, by the way, uh, our Department of Energy canceled through Biden, uh, uh, all new oil and gas leases on public land. No more for now. Oh, off limits. Can't do it. Sorry. Yep. Oh, yeah. We That's all on American soil, but we own it. Neener, neener. <laughs> and we're, we're not going to let you have it anymore. Um, Sounds like some cold. Yeah. 
Sounds like some cold winters coming up, if that's the case. Well, I tell you, it is. Because we, we as humans need the resources of the earth to survive economically. Uh, and, and I would add physically. Yes. Sure. So when you met Anthony Sutton, you'd mentioned that you were both following up a situation with uh, the Carter administration. And I understand that that was sort of a pivotal moment uh, where perhaps the Trilateral Commission began to hijack the executive branch of America. Um, is that correct? They did, as a matter of fact. In fact, it was so pronounced that at one point in time, every member of President Carter's cabinet, was, a, except for one, was a member of the Trilateral Commission. Every single one. Oh. Jimmy Carter himself was a member. So was mm. the vice president candidate, Walter Mondale, who just died recently. Um, and there were other people surrounding his cabinet that were members of it as well. But here you had a clean sweep. And at one point, seven, I think 70% of the United States contingent of the Trilateral Commission was involved in the Carter administration. It was really a clean oh. sweep. Wow. But has I, that, sorry, sorry, carry pardon? on. Pardon? Uh, sorry, carry on. I had another question, but carry on with that statement. Well, it wasn't a political takeover. It wasn't a political coup. And I, I have to stress this, that they said it themselves. We didn't quite accept that initially, but I do now fully, that they were not after political power. They were after economic power. America was the greatest economic driver in the world. We were the ones that were moving and shaking everything in the world, economically speaking. If they could get their hands on the economic policy-making structure in America, they could foster or create their new international economic order. And that's exactly what they did. Example, the United States traditionally appoints the president of the World Bank when, it, when one is up for, for renewal. Europe, on the other hand, gets to appoint the head of the IMF. That's just the courtesy that's been established since they were formed. In the years ensuing from Jimmy Carter, up until, say, I don't know, 1996 or so, there were eight members. Hang on a sec. I got to cancel a call here. Sure. There were eight members. Uh, or excuse me, eight people who had been appointed to the World Bank presidency. Six of those eight were members of the Trilateral Commission. Wow. During that time, there was 12 uh, U.S. trade representatives. Those are the ones that do all the trade agreements, right? To negotiate the trade treaties and stuff like that, like NAFTA and CAFTA, and somebody suggested SHAFTA. Which is a joke. But um, the U.S. Trade Representative, there were 12 of them across the years. Nine of those were members of the Trilateral Commission. You kind of get my drift here? They were after not the United States government political structure, which they hate politicians by and large. They died not use for them. But in this case, they could get a hold of the economic engine of the world and use it and twist it and shape it and manipulate it into the image they wanted to see come out the other end. And this is what we're looking at today. Interesting, interesting. And I would assume that since the, the Carter administration, 
nothing has changed. I mean, it's it's been to to a larger or lesser degree. The Trilateral Commission members have been part of the the cabinet. Federal Reserve, all the high-ranking uh, positions within the the government structure. That's exactly right. George H.W. Bush was a member. Bill Clinton was a member. Al Gore was a member. Dick Cheney was a member. When Obama, <laughs> when Obama came in, um, he wasn't a member. But every one of his national security apparatus, uh, like the... Uh, you know, the director of uh, national security and so on, the whole cabal around him that sheltered him were members of the Trilateral Commission. And it just went on and on and on. And, um, you know, we had a little bit of reprieve during the Trump administration, although there were still there was still some influence there. But it wasn't a wholesale influence like it was in previous administrations. But now that Biden has taken over, they're back. <laughs> they're back. They're all over the place again. And, you know, there, there seems to be no escape. And this is an important point to make. The Trilateral Commission has, these people have never operated on a left-right basis. They could care less about that. They've, they've had smooth sailing with conservative administrations as well as left-wing administrations. It doesn't matter to them. They had both sides of the aisle covered as they move through this whole thing to create a new international economic order. Interesting, interesting. And and we mentioned uh, FDR in passing briefly, and, and he was sort of, uh, the, the technocrats were trying to promote him as the dictator of, of uh, the United States. Are they trying to do the same with Sleepy Joe? And, and uh, are his 40-some executive orders essentially dictates from the new puppet dictator of America? I haven't seen any writings coming out to, to suggest that. Um, it's easy to kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of suggest it, but there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's no, uh, there's nothing in writing, there's nothing substantive that I can find that would suggest that. And and on the other hand, you can say they've got everything they want right now. Why would they need to do that, you know, today? Um, and, and you look at who's controlling things right now. You know, who's who has the power. And it's not hard to realize that the uh, the medical technocracy part of this right now has an incredible power in the world and in the United States and in Canada, too, as I understand. Uh, they're calling the shots. They're calling the policies. They're the ones that are just basically destroying the economic systems of, of the world. Um, you know, you look at people like Anthony Fauci in our country. This guy's a pure technocrat, 100 percent technocrat. Um, and, you know, he flip-flops better than any politician we ever had as far as politics concerned, but the guy's a technocrat. Sure, and, sure. You know, and they're I, the ones that are calling the shot, not the politicians. Yeah, and of course in Canada, I mean, we since um, our administration was elected in October 19, there was a uh, parliament didn't sit uh, because typically they don't, you know, they have a long lengthy break, uh, at the taxpayer's dime and then, you know, enter 2020 in the pandemic. And so obviously that's uh, too, too scary to go to work. 
And so we've been essentially ruled from the PMO's office by and large for this entire uh, Castro administration. Um, but now we're seeing it even ramp up even further. And, you know, given the ties between some of the, the people, particularly our version of, um, Fauci, uh, Teresa Tam, I mean, her links to the CCP and the WHO are undeniable. And you, one has to wonder, you know, who is really dictating what's happening here or, or directing the puppets, uh, to, to do their bidding. Yes. There is a, a great backstory, by the way, to China <clears throat> that escapes almost all political scientists today. But, uh, some some people who were around during that day, the mid-70s, will remember that Zbigniew Brzezinski, as, security, as national security advisor to, to Carter and found, co-founder of the Trilateral Commission, Zbigniew Brzezinski was credited as single-handedly being the, the guy who brought China back onto the global economic stage and political stage. It was him. It was Brzezinski. Um, there were other people that had a hand in it, like Henry Kissinger, uh, even while he's working for Nixon. But historians now credit Brzezinski as being the one who endeared himself and vice versa to Chairman Deng at the time. And China looked like North Korea at the time. It was a train wreck. Train wreck, miserable place, dark, dark place, brutal dictatorship. And so when, when Chairman Deng came to the States to meet with Brzezinski and crew, smiling all the way because he figured he's scoring a great victory here, they knew nothing about capitalism and free enterprise. Nothing. They didn't. Free market economics was not in their vocabulary at all. It was Brzezinski who taught them what they would do in the future. He's a brilliant political scientist for Pete's sake, and he spent hours and days with these people, laying out the framework for their future reemergence to the global stage. Brzezinski did this. Brzezinski was a technocrat, and I have to ask the question, it's self-answering. Do you think Brzezinski could have, at that point, presented Chairman Deng with free market economic theory, or would he seed him with technocracy, you see? Well, duh, he's a technocrat. He found a co-founder of the Trilateral Commission. He's the guy that wrote the book that got Rockefeller all excited to take over the world economically. They fed technocracy to China, lock, stock, and barrel. And then, while they left the, the red flag stayed, the political structure of the chairs and the fantasy work stayed, and everybody thought, oh, it's just a communist dictatorship, like it always has been. But in 2002 which wasn't that long after 1976, Time Magazine ran a story. And Time Magazine, by the way, was one of those original founding members of the Trilateral Commission. <laughs> 1973, the, the chairman of Time, his name was Hedley Donovan. He was one of the prominent founding members of the Trilateral Commission. And he ran Time Magazine for decades, years. Time Magazine came out with a story in 2002 
mistitled The Revenge of the Nerds, but it was all about China. And in it, the writer claimed in proper historical context, using historic technocracy as an example from 1932, the article said bluntly, China is now a technocracy. Bang! That's exactly what Brzezinski set out to do. So you look at China today and you say, is China a communist dictatorship? Of course, most people think, yeah, it sure is. They call them the Chicons, you know. Um, nobody considers that China is just hiding behind that red flag. But they're a technocracy today. They're running society like a, like a supercharged engineering project. <laughs> and they're exporting it to the world. In fact, I just saw, just posted an article the other day that they've got their hooks into British Columbia right now with cameras and social credit scoring systems and stuff that are monitoring your Chinese citizens <laughs> and other innocent passersby that might happen to go to those places to get captured on camera. Um, they're exporting their technocracy system to anybody that will take it in the world. By hook or by crook, sometimes legitimately, sometimes it's just clandestine, but they're doing it in South America, they're doing it in Africa, they're doing it in Europe, and Canada certainly, and they're also doing it here in the United States right now. And of course, the the members of the Trilateral Commission and the technocrats, as you suggest, they don't they don't see nation states, they don't have a, you know, there isn't there isn't an American, there isn't a Canadian, there isn't a Chinese. They're all people and they're all to be subjugated and dominated and, and uh, be some sort of cog in the bigger wheel for this uh, grand plan. Yes. Let me, let me just read you a short quote from Brzezinski's book, Between Two Ages, just to reinforce what you just said. Please. <laughs> no, few people got excited about this back then, but now it makes perfect sense. Here's what he wrote. The nation state, and this is 1970, right? He said, the nation state as a fundamental unit of man's organized life has ceased to be the principal creative force. International banks and multinational corporations are acting and planning in terms that are far in advance of the political concepts of the nation state, close quote. And that's 40-something years ago. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly, that was their plan then, is their plan now. You wonder why is our, why is the American southern border wide open again? That's why, they don't want the, they don't want borders, they don't want nation states. Same thing happened in Europe, by sure. the way. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. So technocracy proposes a completely different economic system, one that has never been implemented in history. Uh, what are the basic tenets of the system? I mean, we kind of touch base on them uh, in bits and pieces, but can we give a? Can you give us a clear definition of that? Absolutely. You know, when we say control over resources, that's kind of a, a obscure concept, I suppose. It really doesn't have much image to it. But there was a book. Just give me a second here. Let me grab this book. Sure. Off the shelf. Um, <laughs> because it's instructive. If I can get it out of here, it's really cramming things up here. Ah, I got it. here we go. Oh yes. This is such a wonderful book. 
Look, look at this. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, about 1,200 pages. It's called the Global um, Biodiversity Assessment. This book was created, and this treaty was uh, created uh, by the UNEP, that's United Nations Environmental Program, uh, at the same time that Agenda 21 was born in Rio de Janeiro, which, of course, produced another book smaller than this by a long shot. This was the expression of how Agenda 21 would control the world. 1,200 pages of absolute craziness. And they determined in here, they made proclamations on everything that would be sustainable and everything that would not be sustainable. And we had to do away with all the non-sustainable stuff. And we needed to do things that are, cool, sustainable. So in that process, in this book, if you were to read it, I've actually, you can see I've been through it and had a few foot markers and footnotes, right? And I wouldn't recommend it. Oh, my, <laughs> I shook my desk. I wouldn't recommend people just run out and buy this for light reading. If, if you do, don't read it at night before you go to bed. You <laughs> use it for a doorstop. It's really heavy. In it, they proclaim things like cattle cattle ranching has to go, man. Cows cows give gas. They produce methane. Red meat's bad for you. No more red meat. Got to get rid of cattle. Got to get rid of golf courses. Oh, I don't know if you play golf up there in, uh, in Canada. I expect some people do. A um, lot of golfers down here in Arizona. Golf courses are unsustainable because they use too much water when you have to water the grass. So we need to get rid of golf courses. Well, what about, what about your carbon footprint on where you live? Do you have a house that really is too big and just inefficient for you? If you're just you and your wife or something, got you know you got two of you, you got a 2,500 square foot house. That's not sustainable. Forget that. Do you have a gas stove in your home? Oh, that's unsustainable. You need to have electric stove. Um, do you um, have a swimming pool? That's not sustainable. You've got to get rid of no more swimming pools. Um, you have to just have a, a backyard with gravel in it, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> do you have um, are, do you have grass in your front yard? Uh, how much percentage-wise to the size of your house? Oh, that's too much grass. You have to cut back on the grass in front of your house. It's unsustainable. And this goes on and on for 1,200 pages, for Pete's sake dictating what the policy is going to be in the future under this resource-based economic system known as sustainable development. This is absolutely insane. We're talking about the, the most, the smallest minutia of detail in human existence is going to be micromanaged by these idiots to tell you exactly what you can and cannot do. They want to tell businesses what they can make and if it ain't sustainable, you ain't going to make it, and you're not going to, we're not going to give you the resources to make it. And we're going to tell you consumers what you are allowed to consume. And if you consume more than your fair share, and we will decide what your fair share is, if you consume any more than that, 
You will be punished for that. This is exactly what China's social credit scoring system is all about. It's precisely what it's all about. Right. Yes. I, I had uh, Dr. Tammy Nemeth on the program uh, a couple weeks back, and uh, she's written a very interesting report uh, focused primarily on the uh, Alberta energy industry and how these foreign powers, World Economic Forum, Council of Rome, etc., have been influencing the decisions that are being made in Canada about our energy resource. And there's some very interesting quotes, you know, from uh, Christina Figueres, uh, saying, you know, why would you need more than one sweater? One jacket is enough. And uh, when you when you dig through, uh, particularly the the EU Green Deal, uh, these type of comments which you're making are detailed down in their minutia, including a proposed uh, tracking of carbon consumption, uh, you know, a, a cap and trade for individuals, and and you know, I'm not sure what happens when you you know breathe. You, let's say you're exercising too much and you're breathing out too much carbon. You know what the penalties are. Uh, you know, maybe you don't get to take the bus that day, or now you're. It's 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 a bizarre. Uh, over-regulated, highly micromanaged view of of uh, the population. It's it's uh, very foreign to the likes of you or I that uh, embrace freedom and liberty. It is, and and I have to say, if it, to, to understand the mind of a technocrat, you have to dig deep. I've done a lot of that. I want to understand, get inside these people's head to try and figure out, you know, how do they work? What, how do they think? But if you go back, if you were to go back and read, for instance, uh, the Technocracy Study Course, which was the Bible back in the early 30s, it's on the Internet. It's been scanned, and anybody can download it and read it. But if you go back and look at it, you'll get the idea very quickly that, <clears throat> that the philosophical view of man is very low. It's, uh, it's very deprived in, in the sense that they view us just as like a herd of cattle in a feedlot, where we exist to be managed and controlled and herded and, you know, where we can just survive, but not a whole lot else. We're, we, they wouldn't want to open the gate of the feedlot and let people just wander out where they want to go. This kind of... This kind of... Um, worldview, that people are no better than cattle, that they're no better than two-toed salamanders in some poor farmer's field somewhere, um, leads to all kinds of crazy conclusions. It, it's, it's really sick. And in fact, there's been a, a, a scholar up in Washington State wrote a book called The War on Humans. And brought out very pointedly that all of this stuff we're talking about right now is anti-human. It's, it's totally anti-human. We are carbon-based life forms, to use an old phrase from Star Trek. <laughs> we are carbon-based life forms. We need carbon to survive. We breathe out carbon dioxide. The plants convert that to oxygen so that we can stay alive on planet Earth and have food to eat from you know the plants that create the food we need carbon without carbon we're all dead and this is a war on carbon a war on carbon is a war against humanity there was one british professor a woman two years ago who wrote a book the name of the book escapes me i'm sure i forgot it on purpose 
But her conclusion is the, in the book was to save the world, the only way to save the world is to let the human race go extinct. No. No. She wrote a whole book on that. <laughs> That's madness. What? No. How can, what is that all about? Let the human race go extinct? That's going to save the world? See, this kind of twisted thinking is just, it's all over the place, but it's absolutely insane. And you know, you brought up one of my favorite characters, um, Christina Figueres. <laughs> I've tracked her for years. Yeah, she's a, I, I just say she's a piece of work, but she's a technocrat. She is a class example of a, wor uh, she's a world-class technocrat. Act uh, four years ago now, before while she was still with the UN, um, and she was a, a mucky muck with the UN, as you know. Uh, she wrote, or she did a press conference, and these words came out of her mouth. I had to listen. I listened to it before it got taken down off the internet. <laughs> but she said, direct quote, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we're setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution, close quote. That's what she said. This, is, this just amplifies everything we've been talking about here. They have a death wish for free market economics. They're going to kill it. They're sworn to kill it. This, this is a statement is just unmistakable. And they have the means to kill it now. And they have the means, like with the World Economic Forum, to do this big reset Green New Deal thing, if they can pull it off. And in the meantime, you know, people just say, oh, we, we need to get the UN out of the United States. You know, we put a, get rid of the United Nations. Let, let, let Canada have them or somebody. But get them off our shore. That is so trite. And it's so um, minimizing to even think in those terms. These people, at their, at their core especially the big wigs, people like the Christiana Figueres of the world and the executive director of the, of the UN and so on. These people have a, a thread of unvarnished evil running through their being. And we need to get a grip on this. The people and normal citizens in the world need to get a grasp of what is going on here. This affects all of humanity. It's not just your country, your state, your province, your group, your city. This is everybody on the planet that they're going after. And, and so, Patrick, I, I've got to ask at that point. I mean, you're you're a God fearing man and, and identify yourself as a, a as, as a biblical scholar. I mean, are we at a, a point in time here where this is actually the, you know, battle of good over evil? I mean, is, is and, and furthermore, you know, my observation of the world and things that have happened in the past, I mean, it clearly seems that there is a, there is evil, there is a demonic force that certain members of society have worshipped. And of course, you know, we mentioned the Nazi regime, which, you know, we know that they were involved with the cult and black magic. If we dial it back to the time when uh, Cortez uh, was invading uh, Mexico, uh, Montezuma was in the in the, the height of his madness of, of murdering, you know, 100,000 people a day. 
that isn't a human tendency. I, in my mind, these people are worshiping some form of de- demon or evil. And, uh, you know, it, and, and to me, the only way that we get out of this, there isn't a political solution. There isn't a military solution. There isn't a rebellion solution. This is the evolution of the human consciousness uh, to once and for all move past this attraction to evil or or banish this evil from the planet and, and move forward collectively in, in a new a newfound spirit and of collectiveness and goodness. <clears throat> it's going to be tough because all the forces are aligned in exactly the opposite direction. Um, there is. Well, let me let me back up just just for a second. It doesn't matter who you are on planet Earth, in my opinion. You will worship something or someone. This has been true throughout history. Humans have an innate desire to worship. And we see different religious groups, of course. Um, We see Christianity. We see Islam, we see uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and so on, are all worshipful groups, if you will. They're worshiping something or someone. In many cases, people simply worship idols, physical idols, like you know, like they did in Old Testament days when they had a golden calf and they worshiped that. Well, say, well, it's just a golden calf. It didn't even speak, but they worshiped it for whatever reason. They had to. Um, today. There's a lot of talk about, um, especially within the technocrat core, that they are not, well, they're, they're anti-Bible, for instance. They don't want anything to do with it because they believe all truth is discovered through science. There are a few religions that focus on science that kind of get along with that idea, by the way not Christianity. The Bible is very clear and definitive on what it says about, you know, the regulation of man, et cetera, et cetera. But the the founding philosophy of both transhumanism and technocracy is found back circa 1800 by the French philosopher Henri de Saint-Simon, Saint-Simon. He wasn't a saint. That's his name, Saint Hyphen Simon. I, I thought for a long time somehow he'd been sated, but he, he wasn't. Um, he was a French philosopher. He had all kinds of ideas that were radical for his day, and he, he is now acknowledged as being one of the founding fathers of both transhuman movement and the technocrat movement. Um, and here's what he said. He said, a scientist, my dear friends, is a man who foresees... It is because science provides the means to predict that it is useful and the scientists are superior to all other men. That's pretty radical. Sure is. He proposed a priesthood of scientists and engineers who admit who would administer or minister to the God of science. Pure and simple. He wanted to do away with all Christianity, most of which was Catholicism at that time. He wanted to get rid of all that stuff and put science up as a god and worship science. And the scientists and engineers would be the priesthood that would interpret what science said so that the rest of the peons of the world would know what they need to do with their lives. This ideology today, this religion today, is super 
uh, present in both the transhuman movement and in the technocracy movement. It is a religion. You can't call it even a philosophy. The inventor of it, St. Simon, said it was a religion. And it still is a religion. There has been uh, eminent uh, religious scholars and writers in the last century, for instance, C.S. Lewis wrote extensively on scientism, refuting it as a religion. We see this today, in any case, where science is lifted up as a god. Science says this, science says that. You know, if you don't have at least one PhD, you can't even come to the speaker to listen to what science is saying. You just, you know, you have to obey what we scientists interpret science as saying. We will give you the policies that will be in line with that. And you must do that. This is a worshipful system. <laughs> and whenever somebody succumbs to that, buys into it in, in the country, when they start, for instance, wearing the mask, because <laughs> science told them to wear the mask, or at least Anthony Fauci told them to wear two masks, because he's a scientist after all, and he's listened very carefully to the oracle of science, he says, and you have to wear it. When somebody just blindly takes that as, oh, I guess I better wear two masks now, they inadvertently have just been converted into scientism. And they don't even know it. Interesting. This is a religious, this is a religious um, proposition that has infiltrated the entire planet at this point, I have to say. The entire planet. Because whenever you see these technocrats, you'll see, you'll see this thinking, the scientific thinking. How can you, you know, when you say something like scientists are superior to all other men, that ought to really bother everybody that hears it or reads it. What? They're better than all other men? Oh my gosh. And I mean, they're like, are they like Hitler's Superman type thing or what? And then when they talk about uh, it is because science provides the means to predict and that it's that a scientist is a man who foresees? You mean like a prophet? You mean like a prophet, Jeremiah or Isaiah or somebody from the Old Testament? They can see the future? This is really dangerous, dangerous thinking. And when they believe that the only source of truth is through the discovery by science and everything else is excluded, religion is excluded, philosophy is excluded, Logic and ethics are excluded. Only science can determine what's right. Hmm. Very dangerous. When you say science in this regard, I mean, I, I understand that more to be scientism as opposed to science. And, you know, obviously the, the pandemic here has shown us that science has been thrown out the window as it has been with uh, climate alarmism. That, uh, yeah. you know, if you have a, if you seek to enter a scientific debate, which doesn't follow the in you know quote consensus opinion, which essentially is the 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 scientism dogma. You're shouted down and marginalized and belittled, and, and yeah. your voice is not heard. So I mean that's that is the antithesis of what science truly is. Yes, they have long forgotten the true principles of the scientific method, and their science today is corrupted on every level, but only to the extent where they can kind of still hide behind the mantra of science. 
and say, oh, this is science. Then somebody like a Dr. Willie Soon will stand up and say, you're wrong. Here's the real deal over here. And, he'll, and that's real science. And it's, it's vastly different than the pseudoscience argument. But in the course of human event, events and human affairs, the practical side of science, because these people are human after all, they have reversed the roles into saying, first, what do we want to accomplish? Now, once we figure that out, how do we manufacture a scientific case to get there? It's backwards. It's backwards, yes. yes. Real science would first say, what do we observe here? What do we see? What can we prove? How do we know this theorem is correct? And once we prove it, what does it mean to us? That's why philosophy, by the way, has always been so intricately woven into science, into real science and real mathemat mathematics. You find a lot of mathematicians, uh, PhD mathematicians also have undergraduate degrees in philosophy. They're very tightly connected. Yeah. And, and certainly, Willie, certainly Willie Soon is, is, a, is a, an astute uh, pupil of philosophy, and uh, which seems uh, sort of uh, counter to what you would imagine a gentleman with that type of mathematical skill has. But you know, he's he is based in that fundamental reasoning of, of philosophy, and I, you know, I think that makes his arguments even more powerful. It does. It does. It's the proper. The only way you can determine the proper the proper application of any given scientific fact. Yes, is through yes. is through philosophy, if you will. And in some cases, we could say, well, it's through. It could be through the interpretation of the Bible or something else. But but the fact of science by itself is just neutral. It's just yes. an observation. That's what is. Gravity is what is. You don't have to understand how exactly how gravity works to know what you need to do about it. Don't jump off a tall building. It's you bad know. for you. It's really bad for you. <laughs> Other people have tried it and they have died. Don't you do that. Um, but this is rejected in the technocrat mind. There is no such ethical boundary whatsoever. So today you have geneticists that are experimenting with human monkey chimeras cross the genes, you know, the DNA with humans into monkey embryos to say, hey, what can we come up with here? You know, there might be there might be something interesting, maybe the planet of the apes or something. But, you know, you say, why would they even want to do something like that? This is way beyond just scientific discovery of what is, you know, what's true in the universe. These people are creating things They say, well, we can do it. Why not do it? There, you know, there's no reason I shouldn't do it. So if they come up with animals, they, they, they've cloned animals like sheep and cattle and stuff, dogs and stuff like that now. Well, that's, what's the problem with that? We can do it. Why not? Well, the downside of that, you know, there's risk in doing that. And there may be some philosophical reasons you don't want to do that. But that never occurs to them. They're not, they're not limited by any type of ethics or morality whatsoever. And we see this all the time with this with this crowd, like that woman, for instance, who says the answer to save the world is to let the human race go extinct. Right, right, right. She, she can't process it. That's the only way she can process what's, where she's at. Well, let them all die. 
So, Patrick, given that background now, if, if we take all that we've learned and, and we focus it into what's happened over the last, let's say, 16 to 18 months, um, right from maybe, let's say, the, uh, the, the pandemic preparation games of Event 201, uh, October 2019 there, it sure seems to me that we've been subjected to essentially a prepared script of actions uh, which have unfolded uh, to a larger or lesser degree in a seamlessly uh, uninterrupted fashion. Uh, yep. do, you, do you agree with that opinion? Yeah, I do. Um, and again, it isn't, I mean, there, there are things to discuss about the origins of the virus and the nature of the virus. Is it, you know, is it a bioweapon uh, or not? And so on. Those, those are things that have all been settled yet. Um, but the public reaction, or at least the, the technocrat reaction on shutting down the whole planet, for instance, everybody's wearing masks and everybody's social distancing and, and the economy of the world has been radically turned upside down. Uh, those policies can be examined very easily and very readily. You know, we can see what's going on. It has been a script in that sense. It's absolutely been a script. And it continues even today, even though the science has fallen apart altogether, it, it hasn't stopped any of this stuff yet. Um, no, and certainly like in British Columbia here, our provincial health doctor, uh, the dishonorable Bonnie Henry, uh, who in in previous uh, times has uh, backed the wear, not wearing of masks and has even in the springtime said they, they provide no benefit. And now she's, you know, masking school children from, I think, pretty much kindergarten to grade 12. Uh, and, you know, and clearly there is no, for, for a coronavirus particle versus a, a cloth mask or a non-medical mask, I mean, the only reason you're wearing that is to subjugate yourself to control and, and you lose your individuality. There's no medical benefit there whatsoever. Yes, you're exactly right. The biggest, uh, and, and, and I have to say at this point, pretty much everybody down here that thinks about these things is, is concluding this is not going away anytime soon. This is not, there's not going to be a finite end. Like some people say, well, we're going to go back to normal in May or in September or yeah. whatever. Forget that. It ain't never going to happen. There will be no return to the old normal. And the script will continue to be played out in the future. Uh, and the gene therapy shots will continue to come out every six months with new ones. And you need this one, you need that one. And that whole thing is not going to stop. And if there's, if there's anything to be concerned about for the next shoe that might drop, which I don't think they're done. I think the, the coup d'etat is well underway at this point for technocracy, starting with the pandemic. Well, and by the way, we didn't mention this, but the same people that brought us the panic, the alarmism to the virus, the same people that were working climate alarmism at the London School in, 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 uh, in England. Yes. Same people. Yes, absolutely. Computer and models, trash, trashy, garbage. Yes. And just, there's, also, there's also a series of, of um, quotes from a number of these globalists that indicated in, in the financial meltdown of 0809 that they were disappointed that there wasn't more pain and suffering of the populace to demand change. And so now they're pushing the thumb harder on the populace and causing more and more pain so that people cry out, you know, save us, give us this new great new reset, and it's got to be better than what we have now. Yeah. 
if there was if there was one incident that really got their attention, it was when Greta Thunberg went to the United Nations, stamped her feet, had a temper tantrum in front of the whole thing, and said, "Your house is on fire," and they all yawned. Yeah, they just basically yawned. She went off all in a huff, and I think that was a turning point where the people pushing the the false narrative said. We need to do something different because this has run out of steam. We got a, no more gas here. We got to do something different. The problem with the global warming was it never produced any dead bodies. The best they could do was polar bears. Yeah. And that was completely discredited. Polar bears are doing just fine. And now that um, zoologists have figured that out and documented studies, they've been, never been better actually <laughs> today than they have been in the past. Um, that was the last bit of dead bodies, but global warming never killed anybody. And sure. with the pandemic, there's dead bodies lying all over the place. They could have just left it at the dead bodies that normally would occur, but you know, they manufactured, you know, made sure that there was stories at least of extra dead bodies laying around. Oh, it's terrible. It's like a, you know, it's like World War II zone or whatever. And people were scared to death and they just completely panicked and, and, the global alarmism crowd was so thrilled uh, by this that they can now do anything basically they wanted to do. And that's just when good old Klaus Schwab started to reassert himself with the economic salvation of the world. It's over here, folks. And we need the great reset. We need to build back better. Uh, this thing is just a, a, a con job of epic proportions. Sure. And, and let's just let's that's all they did. They just jumped track and they, they took off, took after the pandemic, said, let's forget global warming for a while. Now they're reconnecting it, however. Right now they're saying, oh, it's all intimately related again. For sure. And let's just touch on that, because the means in which these technocrats and the globalists have um, promoted their propaganda is through the mainstream media, which clearly is no longer reporting facts as they exist this is these are propaganda engines and of course that has now been integrated with social media and i know you have a particular opinion on social media and i'd, I'd love for you just to cover those two topics for us please <laughs> yeah well <clears throat> the people at the top of the the heap and big tech they're not communists and they're not marxists they're not socialists they're technocrats I understand it that way. Nobody else really wants to understand it that way. But you can't look at somebody like a, oh, like an Eric Schmidt or a Jack Dorsey or an Elon Musk and call him a Marxist. You just can't do it. Nobody can. It's, it's just not thinking. They are not those things. They are technocrats. Um, and as such, they have a particular affinity for China. Why? Because China is a technocracy. That's why you see all the the back and forth and the camaraderie between them. Birds of a feather flock together. They always have, and they always will, and they do in this case. By the way, Elon Musk, I had to bring up his name. Elon Musk, the head of Tesla, SpaceX, the Boring Company, and I don't know how many other companies, right? A billionaire, <clears throat> inventor, scientist, brain, brainiac, whatever. Elon Musk's grandfather, Dr. Joshua Haldeman, H-A-L-D-E-M-A-N, was a Canadian. 
and he was the grand leader of the entire technocracy movement in Canada. Hmm. He was the, I call him the grand poobah. That means, you know, like he's, he, he, he wears the crown or whatever, I don't know. But um, Haldeman left Canada after defending the technocracy movement, uh, defending charges that they were Nazis, uh, you know, like in Nazi Germany. He got fed up with Canada, he went to South Africa. <clears throat> and uh, that's where Elon Musk was born. But Musk grew up in a household, in a family, that was the leader of the technocracy movement for much of the world at that time. And he was steeped at it, raised at it. He's 100% in his nature as an expression of technocracy. So the one thing that technocrats fear are the people who are involved in this kind of loose-knit group called the populist movement in the world, populist movement. They fear this group more than anything because they're the ones who are always throwing cold water on their crazy ideas. They're the ones like the Willie Soons of the world who think through the, the illogic of their arguments and bring it to their attention. And then they have the audacity to go out and tell other people in the country just how crazy they are and that gets them in all kinds of trouble. We're the only, the populist movement is the only threat these people have on planet earth. That's why they feel that they need to silence any criticism or any narrative that, that is contrary to their narrative. They have no problem doing it. Just ka-chunk, you know, the guillotine comes down and chops them off from speaking. That's why they can get away with, uh, with uh, banning Donald Trump from Twitter altogether and it will never take them back they still haven't taken it back but even when that happened after Jan in january nobody really talked about the other seventy-five thousand people that were purged from twitter for the same reason at the same time they're, they're just gone just like the french revolution when the guillotine comes down to chop people's heads off <laughs> just, boop, boop, you're gone you were here yesterday you're not here today you might as well be dead you don't have a voice anymore You've been excommunicated. Uh, that's essentially akin to historic book burning and, and, and rewriting of history. I mean, the, the censorship and the removal of that volume of information is the uh, same thing, isn't it? Absolutely. It is electronic book burning. And the only reason people aren't alar alarmed about it, because electronic, there's no piles of books burning in the street where somebody can film it with an iPhone. <laughs> sure, sure. It, it happens quietly overnight. That's right. It just does. And... You know, like when, <clears throat> even when Parler was killed um, by Amazon, Google, and um, Apple, within a 24-hour period, uh, the social media alternative, Parler, which had 20 million users at the time, was summarily executed by big tech. They had colluded. Obviously, they had colluded because it all happened within a time frame that was just very short. It was like within an hour, maybe uh, a day and a half, where first um, Apple kicked them out of the App Store, then Google kicked them out, and that cut them off at the knees, and then Amazon canceled their data contract for hosting. They're gone. This was a murder. This was not violation of community policies. This was, this was a- It's an assassination. 
mob-like killing. <laughs> I know. Yeah, and, absolutely. And they got away with it. Nobody has pressed them to the wall on this. Congress hasn't. Our Congress hasn't. Nobody else has. There were plenty of Canadians, by the way, that belonged to Parler. That was awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the Canadian government hasn't gone after any of these companies. They're all operating up there. They have laws on your books, just like we do. But they well, don't do it. that's the thing. It shows you who's got the power here. They have the power to do stuff like this. That ought to be enough, really, to set anybody's hair on fire. Yes, that there's a yes. group of people running around with that kind of influence and power that can get away, literally, with murder with no consequences. Well, and now we have a bill federally, Bill C-10, which is essentially the, the snow, I call it the snowflake bill, uh, when it's, you know, that's, it's, there's a grander purpose for it. Whereas, you know, this conversation that we're having today, should we criticize portions of the, the administration, this could be struck from the record because it is, it's hateful or harmful or, or hurts somebody's feelings. And, you know, really what that is doing is, pre is preventing any form of public discourse uh, and shaping the opinion into a singular opinion uh, that exists. That's right. That's exactly what's happened all around the world too. And this, this is not, this is not just uh, an unattended consequence. I believe this is this is the consequence that they're after in the first place. It's part of the script. Shut communication down. Uh, the revolution is complete. Yeah. This yeah. is complete. Yes. So let, let's shift gears here. And we you know we touched on the subject of the, the COVID-19 vaccines, which aren't really a vaccine. Um, you know, this seems to be uh, gene manipulation and maybe the beginning of the transhumanism and uh, medical intervention into the human genome. Yes. This has been the dream of transhumans forever is to be able to directly manipulate the DNA of the human race. And um, this is a new thought for most people. They just, you know, most people view the experiments that you hear about from time to time as just being some kind of a, you know, a weird scientist, a mad scientist in the back room doing something by himself. That's not the case. <clears throat> the, um, the, organi the organizations of academia have been shuffled significantly in the last 25 years to where four disciplines in particular have been merged. Now, they still operate independently, but they've been merged together for one new uh, interdiscipline uh, department. And it's based on the acronym NBIC. N stands for nanotechnology. B stands for biotechnology. I stands for information technology. And C stands for cognitive, uh, well, just cognitive, the science of the mind. And <clears throat> NBIC has brought these various disciplines together on the premise that everything is digital in the end, like DNA, for instance, is a digital language to them, programmable digital language. And so information technology merged with biotechnology merged, et cetera, you know, with nanotechnology. Um, all of these things have been refocused in the universities of the world to focus on the transhuman goal of extending life on Earth. And the real hardcore of the transhuman movement, 
wants to achieve outright immortality. In other words, they will never die. And they will exist in some form, maybe in a computer somewhere traveling in space, or maybe as an avatar uh, that they can choose a body of their liking. But uh, they're looking ultimately to escape death altogether. So they're applying technology to the human condition to create humanity 2.0. This has been around for a long time. And uh, the creation of NBIC units at universities has merely offered these people an opportunity to get together and to merge their disciplines together to, to how can we do this? We know what we want to do. How can we do it? Let's figure out a good way to do it. The best way, we're up to this point, let's say, um, we've seen genetic engineering in uh, plant life, seeds in particular, crop, uh, agricultural crops. We've seen it in animals, uh, pigs, fish, uh, sheep. I don't know, pretty much everywhere in animals now. And the last frontier is humanity. The last frontier is humans themselves. Uh, again, this is something that ought to just set everybody's hair on fire. It does mine. Um, but this is nothing new. And uh, I want to read you a paragraph out of a book called The Earth Brokers. This is a great book. Please. Uh, 1994. By two principals of the Rio de Janeiro Conference, the United Nations Conference. Uh, they were original environmentalists, and they, they participated in all of the Agenda 21 uh, discussions as principals. And uh, they came away with, uh, with an empty view of what happened. They said, this, something's really gone screw here. And they wrote a book on it called The Earth Brokers. They said, These guys are just uh, basically the quacks. They're not environmentalists. Um, but this is a very insightful book. Now, they were still environmentalists when they wrote the book. So they're not like, you know, they're libertarians or the Republicans or anything like that. They were just people. Um, he wrote, uh, <clears throat> this is, uh, I think, comes from like page 42. Um, and remember, I showed you the book, The Global Biodiversity Assessment, a big fat book. Uh, indeed, the Biodiversity Convention is just one of many typical examples where the concern for exponential destruction of the world's biodiversity has been perverted into a preoccupation with new, uh, with new scientific and biotechnological developments to boost economic growth. <clears throat> or as uh, Vandana Shiva puts it, it is ironical that a convention for the protection of biodiversity has been distorted into a convention to exploit it. <laughs> but he goes on, he says, then the convention explicitly equates the diversity of life, that is animals and plants, to diversity of genetic codes. This is written in 1994. For which read genetic resources. By doing so, diversity becomes something modern science can manipulate. Finally, the convention promotes biotechnology as being essential for the conversation and sustainable use of biodiversity. So their whole idea, even back then, was to hijack biodiversity to create some new, make a new creation on Earth. Uh, maybe just, you know, basically saying, God didn't do it right. <laughs> we, can, we can. But then to recap his summary, the main stake raised by the Biodiversity Convention is the issue of ownership and control 
over biological diversity. In the case of the North and the USA in particular, the major concern was protecting the pharmaceutical and emerging biotechnology industries. These guys nailed this to the wall. They, I mean, it must have been blatant enough where they picked up on it and they just, you know, hold it like it was. 1994, actually, well, Rio happened in 1992. Mm -hmm. This was part of the whole technocracy slash transhumanist. Remember, I said they're kind of like Siamese twins joined at the hip. This was part of the plan all along, was to conquer biodiversity and literally take over the genetic engineering of biodiversity, plants and animals, and we're part, we, they view us as an animal. Interesting, interesting. You, this is dangerous, dangerous stuff they're playing with here. And most and of course, wants to see it. And of course, now we're looking at uh, merging that with uh, potential AI engines, um, which, you know, who knows how those two are going to be integrated. And that, you know, looks to me like the next step. And of course, we have uh, uh, Elon Musk sending satellite after satellite up into low orbit with the 5G uh, platform, which, you know, clearly is has some bearing on what's happening here, whether that's surveillance or control um, or, you know, could have limitless functions once they once they harness that technology and develop it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And remember, for all of Musk's uh, activities on Earth, um, he is one of the primary members of the space cult. <laughs> I call it the space cult because he wants to go to Mars. He wants to colonize Mars. Mm. He's a, a big race right now with, with uh, Jeff Bezos. Yes. Yes. To be the first to colonize Mars. Well, <laughs> let's 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 send them off, and we'll 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 fire them off to Mars and leave them there. We're we're, we're happy here on Earth. I know. I I have a feeling that if they figured out a way to ever come back, we'd be in big trouble. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, we'll see. So you know, one of the other things, of course, that with this uh, technocratic takeover is the what's you know what's referred to as the universal basic income and of course our uh, dishonorable prime minister here has just recently fielded uh, his version of that as uh, you know which is probably part of his election ploy which is going to be called at any moment um, why is this an important part of the technocratic plan this universal basic income that was built into it from day one uh, people can go and read the technocracy study course they'll find it they they had proposed, uh, and of course, any economic system has to have a lifeblood accounting system, and that's what money is to us with free market economics. It's simply really a scorekeeper. Um, but they proposed to have an energy script. They would make a forecast at the beginning of a period as to how much energy there was going to be produced in the economy. They would divide that by the number of people in the economy and simply pass out a dole Here's your share, and you can spend it any way you want. But they figured that goods and services were going to be priced according to how much energy went into making those goods and services, right? So they thought, well, that's a way to balance the economy used by energy. So the idea of an energy script, and there would be no money otherwise. There's only money that they were going to use, energy script, they called it. And... The energy script, let's say it was issued monthly as an example, 
at the on, on the first of the month you'd get your allocation of energy script and you could go out and buy groceries and clothes and whatever you needed to buy at the end of the month your energy script would expire and you'd get a new allocation and what that meant was that uh if you had script left over that you didn't spend it you couldn't carry it over to the next period there, so there was no savings plan we could have and secondly there was no inheritance plan because there was no accumulation of wealth whatsoever it's just simply your currency expired you get another allocation you spend for that month it expires it goes on in a cycle forever they thought this is the perfect way to regulate the technocracy and its resource-based economic activity that's what they thought this is the exact same thinking of universal basic income and it's being experimented with all over the world right now in many cities around the world many cities in america have already adopted um, some test for universal basic income interesting now even the federal government is talking about it <laughs> And I mean, and certainly in a in a modern society, there should be a level to which no one descends beyond if they have means of participating in the economy. You know, we certainly don't uh, want to see scenes like we see in India, where there's you know legless people begging for alms and this type of thing. But to have uh, you know, in a situation here again in Canada with the what we call the CERB, which is this economic relief bill you know we have a bunch of millennials uh sitting at home in their parents basement playing video games 12 hours a day earning their two thousand dollars a month and that seems to be okay for them um you know and you know right now perhaps there isn't the jobs for them to do but there's probably something for them to do uh even if that's uh, out in the field tree planting or, or something constructive and productive other than biding their time aimlessly and and i think as well there's there's another aspect of that which is vote buying uh you know you've got a series and of course you know the again probably what biden is doing letting the uh the immigrants flood in from the south uh our our administration here is looking to allow something like four hundred thousand, um you know uh people to jump the queue that are that are in the immigration queue which brings hopefully 400,000 votes towards the administration. So I think there's, there's a couple of different things going on there as well. <clears throat> there is, um, and, and there's different iterations of it as well, but it, it really all boils down to, to one thing, and that is you become a, a serf of the state. Absolutely. And if Absolutely. the state decides, like it did, uh, FDR did this back during the Great Depression, he said anybody that wants government benefits has to go out and do something for work. So he created the WPA. And people went out and they built roads, they built rock fences and rock walls and stuff. I mean, they, they made work for him to do. If you want to, you know, if you want to get benefits, you have to go do this. The governments of the world will do will will do this again. There'll, there'll come a time when they say, you know what, no more time in the basement for you. You're going to do something if it's just pick up trash on the street, on the road, yeah. you're going to push a broom to clean the gutters. You're going to do something. Sure. And at that point, you have no choice. You say, that's your work. If you want to, if you don't want to keep up your, your, your monthly check, you're going to have to do that. You will be it literally a slave of the state. And yes. kind of using that word again, probably needs a little more underscore. In America, at least, uh, we did away with slavery a long time ago. 
Many countries, however, still practice slavery in the world today. Uh, they're not pretty places to, to go to, and they're not pretty places to observe, you know, to see, but there's still a slavery in the world. We conquered slavery a long time ago. And even though there's some, you know, under, uh, under society slavery going on today, like sex trafficking and child trafficking and stuff like that, um, by and large, we don't have any institutionalized slavery in America left. What universal basic income will achieve and technocracy at large is part of it. It will achieve a system of global slavery, the likes of the which the world has never seen. I called it years ago, neo-feudalism, because uh, anybody that's ever studied the dark ages and what feudalism was all about, where the landlords owned everything and the peasants owned nothing, and they lived at the instance of the landlord and their life was very tenuous. Um, there was a reason they called it the Dark Ages, because <laughs> it was very dark for humanity. Well, this is headed towards neo-feudalism, if you will, where the resources of the world now are controlled by a few oligarchs, technocrat oligarchs, and where the people of the world will own nothing. Sure. You will have no ability to get ahead in life at all. They'll just be locked into their slave status, unable to get out, unable to escape, unable to do anything about it, can't change the system because the system is too powerful and it keeps them locked into the slavery condition. This is happening on a global basis. Yeah, and that's, of course, uh, Carl Schwab's famous line of you will own nothing and you'll be happy, which you know, one must ask, well, who will own it and who's going to benefit from that? And, and you know, right. there, there is an answer to that, which is, as you suggest, there will be these new feudal lords, or, which will be the, the minutia of the population with everyone else as their vassals and serfs. Yeah. But, you know. yeah, but the key to that statement is I, I listened to that, that young lady a dozen times at least saying that I own nothing and I'm so happy. <laughs> you know, uh, You'll own nothing and you'll rent everything, but the things that you rent, pay-per-view sort of mentality, the things that you rent will be with the UBI that you get from your government. And if they decide to give you 80% of what you got last month or 120% you got this month, you don't have anything to say about it. Right. You get what you get. And you'll be happy for it because you'll you'll need it real quick to go out and buy some, get, rent some things and keep alive. Yes, yes. Gosh, it's crazy. So, in your opinion, then, is is the American Constitution the singular barrier to the globalists implementing this uh, Orwellian nightmare? Only to the only in the sense that the populist movement globally is a barrier. Uh, the Constitution at this point is only deemed important by this populist movement. It's not a magic amulet, but it happens to be the, the flag, if you will, that the populist movement in America waves. There was a, there was a populist movement in Europe, however, France, Germany, uh, and some of the smaller countries. Um, there was one in Great Britain, it's since been crushed. <laughs> Uh, and they're trying to crush it in Europe as well. 
but in America, where we still are populated with many, many gun owners, and you know, we're talking tons of ammunition and stuff, where they just can't come and come out here and take us over. Um, we are the last large group of populists in the world that are un that have not been conquered yet. Right. right. You can kind of understand from that, uh, or, or extrapolate from that why we are experiencing so much trouble right now with this, why they are after us so diligently, just trying to silence us and destroy us and break our spirit and get us to succumb to the propaganda, right? Sure, um, sure. But we scare them to death. You know, if there was a Dr. Frankenstein movie, well, there was uh, back when, in the 30s, I forget, but at the end of the movie, uh, the peasants came out uh, to the mansion of Dr. Frankenstein where they had pitchforks and shovels and torches and they're, they're going to do business with, with the good doctor who was terrorizing their city. We represent to these people the torches and the pitchforks, whatever. And, and we're ready, you know, a large part of America, even though they don't fully recognize it, they're ready to come for these people right now. There's a lot of dissent going on, a lot of rumbling across social media. That's why social media had to just blanket these people out, just erase sure. them. Yes. Shut them up. Keep, keep them from, in, you know, infecting anybody else with their crazy ideas, to them crazy ideas. To us, just simple ideas of, hey, we just like to live out here, you know? It's just like, leave us alone. Yes, yes. Um, and, and of course, here in Canada, the the kind of co-Prime Minister uh, Ragmeet Singh from the uh, the new Communist Party there, you know, he's calling for an implementation of the Emergency Measures Act, which suspends the charter, uh, other than Section 1. And Section 1 is about as wishy-washy a section as you could possibly imagine. And, and, you know, once that comes to play, that's the end. And so, you know, I'm... I'm Lately, the last uh, week or so, become very fearful of of that potentiality because once that happens, uh, life as we know it ceases to exist, and you know what happens past that is anybody's guess. Yep, I know we have a big task ahead of us, and the um, the only thing I can see for America at this point. And by the way, I get emails from all over the world from people that are watching like technocracy news, 50% of our traffic of technocracy news is outside the United States. It's just amazing. And it, at first, I, it made me mad when I discovered that it made me mad at Americans. What's wrong with you people <laughs> to wake up? But I get emails from people all over the world basically saying, we sure hope you Americans can do something about this because over here, we're screwed. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's <laughs> you true. Know, right. Uh, say, wow, I, okay, big responsibility. I don't, you know, we're kind of it right now. And, and one thing that I've, you know, kind of discovered, I wouldn't say it's a hobby horse necessarily, but the most important thing that we need to do as a people is to keep the lines of communications open to be able to talk with people and to discuss with people and so on. This is the way our country was founded. This was the whole issue of debate when, when our founding documents were created. And they put the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights as the First Amendment on purpose because it's all about communication. And it demands that we should be able to speak with each other regardless of difference of opinion, et cetera. And this has been purposely crushed, in my opinion. It's been purposely 
uh, crushed all over America. Every single point of the First, uh, First Amendment has been attacked from churches to free speech to freedom of the press to our right to assemble. And of course, the government isn't even listening to us anymore. Yes, that's, that's sure. more. The government listens? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, don't. I know so, your government doesn't listen much either. <laughs> not at all, except to themselves. So, so what then is your advice, Patrick, you know, to the average Canadian or American or anyone in the world uh, seeking to escape this nightmare? You know, what can be done? What, what can we, can we provide any hope for anyone? Or are we on the slippery slope and need to sort of experience all this and hope it comes out the other side better than we're at now? Well, you know, there is, there is good reason why, uh, there's a very large prepper movement still called today, you know, people that are learning skills, going back, learning skills and how to get along when there's no grocery store down the street. <laughs> I, I can't say that's a bad thing. I'm not, that's not my mentality, but I do believe that the last firewall that people can put up anywhere is going to be where they live. It's going to be in their town. It's going to be in their city, maybe their county or their district. And that is where you live, and that's where the people who lead you live. They're accessible to you. Um, and the local community is the only kind of last molecular level of society that you can drive this wokeness out of and this, this philosophy, this mentality out of and set up a barrier in your community so that it cannot come in again. And I, I'll give you an example. I know it's kind of a oblique statement, but the city of New Orleans, for instance, uh, a few months ago, the city council there banned facial recognition. Boom. They banned it. No more. At the same time, they also banned pre-crime software, which had been implemented by the police department. They said, no, we're not going to do that. Get, out, get rid of it. Um, other towns have done similar things, but I, I just use that as an example. The city level still has incredible power to defend the citizens that live in the city. And it doesn't matter if you're a large city, a small city, or anywhere in between. You could be a city, you have, live in a town of 5,000 people. You still have a city council, you have city, uh, city borders, and you have a city council that can pass binding resolutions on anybody that comes close to your city. And people need to do that. They need to realize that the influence that they have right there and get back into their community and start talking. <clears throat> I do believe over the last 20 years that um, as good people have been forced into silence, self-censoring, if you will, where they're just afraid to go out and talk with people, what's happened is that there's been an intellectual vacuum created and into that intellectual vacuum, all of these other things have been sucked in because a vacuum always seeks to fill itself, right? So the, it's brought in all these other things that we don't like. This is why they're here is because those people that were hiding in their, whatever they were hiding in their basements, uh, they weren't out there mixing it up and saying, we reject that idea. We reject that program. We reject that initiative. We reject that agenda 21, whatever, blah, blah, blah. We, you know, that uh, zoning thing. People were just absent. The only way to drive it out is to do the reverse thing again, become active and drive those people out of our space and reclaim it. 
And don't worry about the city down the road. Don't worry about your state. Don't necessarily worry about your national government. You spend too much time on it. It's just going to, you know, may end up being a waste of time anyway, like it is here right now. But, um, you know, aside from maybe just casting your vote, get the heck out of the way and go back to your local city and start mixing it up with the leadership there. Get to know them. Get to, get to understand them. Interact with them. Tell them what you don't like. If they don't, just flat out say, well, you know, we're going to have that general plan and, you know, the heck with you, get out of here. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Okay, now you know who you need to get rid of in the next election. Get rid of them and, and you know, browbeat them out of existence, whatever, but you don't want them creating public policy in your community. And there's school boards, there's fire boards, there's water boards, there's, I mean, and committees all over the place. Most all of which are wide open for people, for citizens to go in and get a seat at the table. They could do it. Our director of training, by the way, at uh, Citizens for Free Speech has a, a statement to just kind of to kick things off when, it, when she teaches her communication course. If you don't have a seat at the table, you are what's on the menu for dinner. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, that's, uh, let's leave it there today, Patrick. It's been a, an outstanding discussion, uh, very enlightening. Um, you know, there's a lot of very scary information there. Uh, and and I, I think that's uh, your, your closing statements are, are very powerful and that people need to become active, um, have their voice be heard, even if it's not uh, maybe the populace um, or, the, or the, the, the common consensus opinion uh you know if you found some information you need to make it to others aware of it and, and push for change otherwise uh change will be pushed upon you yeah that's exactly right it's time to stand up time to get a backbone and stand that's up it. and for men hey be a man again you know <laughs> don't leave it to just don't leave it to all your women to do your fighting for you for pete's sake how about you get up and do something you know yeah. um and, and, you know, thank God for the women that we have in our society that are still fighting for liberty and stuff. But it's time for the men of the world, of our country, for sure, to rise up and get a backbone. Yeah. Amen. And so, Patrick, if people uh, would like to know more about you or, or your work, where would I direct them? Well, technocracy.news is where my professional website is. And citizensforfoodspeech.org is our local activist um, um, organization. And I realize that, you know, for Canadian viewers, that doesn't have a lot of application, although we, we do have a lot of people joining our, just to watch to see what's going on, but we can't really help them directly, you understand. Nevertheless, we, we invite everybody to come and, and the, the issue of free speech really is not just an American issue, it's everywhere. <laughs> Sure. Canada, you have a you have a boatload of free speech issues that you need to get around. Um, but if we can't restore communication, proper communication, we're all doomed anyway. I mean, you know, there there will this is a truism of life. Not this is not political science. This is truism of life. When communication stops, the fighting begins. Always. It's even true in marriage relationships. When people get divorced, what happened, dude? You you're such a perfect couple. Well, to communicate, you know, she she wouldn't communicate with me anymore, or he he froze me out. It's the same thing every single time. You shut off communication, the fighting starts. We need to like restart communicating again, and refuse to play the narrative that they want us to play. 
Yeah, yeah, and that, that that extends into uh, the division and the separation and uh, trying to break everybody into these separate camps that are at each other's throats instead of everyone as a cohesive front battling uh, those who wish to oppress us. Right. Don't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get rid. Get rid of the mask. You're complicit in your own demise. That's great. Exactly. All right, Patrick, you have yourself a great afternoon. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we will touch base here again in the future as uh, we uh, see some developments uh, take place in, in this uh, in this world of ours. Yep. My pleasure. Glad it worked out. Hope it, uh, hope it does some good for all your viewers. Very good. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye.